turn to chapter 14 in the book of Luke this morning. We're going to be looking at Luke 14, verses 1 through 24. Luke 14, 1 through 24. One Sabbath, when he was to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet... Do not, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they could not repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house, my, my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Uh, Father, I pray that you would grant us to understand and love 
what your Holy Spirit wants to teach us through these words that have been recorded for our good. Uh, Father, I pray that we would not be deceived by the very thing the Pharisees were deceived, but that you would give us love for you. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the privileges we have to be able to carefully go through a gospel like the gospel of Luke, some of you might be saying, why do we spend two years in the gospel of Luke? Uh, One response would be, where else than in a gospel where we get to see Christ's life on display in front of us? and to learn from Him, to see the culmination of all Scripture come in God's Son, in Christ to us. And the Holy Spirit lets us be like a fly on the wall in a Pharisee's house, a ruler of the Pharisees. And we get to see an epic encounter between light and darkness. We get to see a sinister plan meet the Son of God, the One who only speaks truth. And there's so much for us to learn. There is so much. In your notes, there's three questions for you to ask yourselves. When you come listen to a sermon, don't come mainly to be entertained or learn interesting things that are fun to think about, but know that God's Word is meant to cut down into your heart, to expose sin, to show you the grace of Christ. And so there's three questions you see. Whose approval am I living for? What perception of myself do I project before others? And what is the perception of myself before God? Three questions that the Pharisees did not seem to ask or get wisdom in. And then three exhortations. What's an exhortation? An address or communication emphatically urging someone to do something. I think this text is calling, is urging us to respond by faith. And there's three of those that we will look at. Let's jump into this story. This account. This is not the first time Jesus has been in this situation on the Sabbath with the Pharisees. I want to look at a few others before we jump into this, just to kind of give us an idea of the relationship that's been established so far between Christ and them. So if you have your Bibles Turn back to Luke chapter 6. 
uh, beginning in verse 6. We'll just quickly refresh our memory. Luke chapter 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And then turn to Luke chapter 13, verse 10. We read another similar account. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his donkey, his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound for 18 years, be loosed from the, from this bond on this Sabbath day? And he said these things, all of his ab- and all of his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. And then just one more, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, he entered the synagogue and there was a man there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he'd heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved, at the hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched, he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out, immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So this isn't the first rodeo in this sort of situation, but 
the plans of the Pharisees are culminating. We're now a few months from Jesus' death. And the Pharisees get a plan. They're going to invite Jesus to dine with them. And they're going to do something they would never do. They're going to invite a man with dropsy to come. They would never do this because relationships are like currency in that culture. Who you dine with gives you value, gives you status. And the Pharisees loved the praise that came from man. The last person they would ever invite into their home to dine with them would be someone that had this disorder. So what this was is this is the body that isn't functioning properly, retaining fluid. And any fluid discharge, if you read the Old Testament, uh, would make uh, a person ceremonially unclean. And so they looked at people who had this disorder. It wasn't a disease. This was a symptom of some other uh, condition or disease of the heart or lungs or liver or kidneys. This was a symptom of that. But they viewed people like this as judged by God, as evil people. But on this occasion... They're seeking to set Christ up. They're stacking the deck. They're going to get proof of how Jesus will break the tradition of the elders. There's nothing in the old covenant law that would uh, that says you can't heal on the Sabbath. But you know the Pharisees and scribes have come up with extra-biblical traditions they've added to the law and they're experts in this area. So we see on one Sabbath in verse 1, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of a ruler of the Pharisees, this is a big shot, they were watching him carefully. So, they were waiting to see what he would do because they knew the circumstances that they had created. Uh, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Simple question. They should know what the Word of God says. They know that Jesus is going to point back to the law and that they merely have traditions of the elders. So they keep silent. They remain silent. They also maybe remain silent because if they said, yes, it is lawful, well, then their plan fails. But if they say, no, it's not lawful, they wouldn't want to deter him 
from making the mistake they want him to make. They could care less whether or not he pleases God. They merely want to trap him. And so they remain silent. And he took him and healed him and sent him away. This is God's answer to that question. It is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. It is not wrong. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not respond to these things. You see, Jesus was exposing. The trap was set on Christ, but Jesus sets the trap back on them as he knew and they knew that they all would have saved an ox, which was worth money that was about to drown. They would definitely pull their ox out of the well. That's money in their pocket. And if it was their son, surely they would do that. But this man, this man, they would not heal on the Sabbath day. Here's the question. What is going on in the Pharisee's heart that makes them rebel against Christ, be remain silent? What keeps them from following Him? What keeps them in their pride and, and silence? It's this one fact that we all can in fact struggle with. Whose approval are you living for? Are you living for the approval of God or the approval that comes from man? The response that important people give us to our identity or value. They lived for the praise of man. Look with me uh, in John chapter 5, verse 39. Let me show you how scary this is. Why every one of you ought to take question one very seriously. John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus said, to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. If Billy, who has a father who's a millionaire, would come to you in his father's name, you would receive him. That would give you credibility. He says, I've come in my Father's name, you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe 
when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. So you say, what's the big deal about seeking the approval of others? Well, do you want to believe in Christ? Do you want to follow Christ? Do you want your life to be marked by devotion to Him? Because Jesus told them, you cannot believe in me because you love the praise that comes from man. Look at John chapter 12, verse 42. This is a scary, scary indictment. John chapter 12, verse 22. After Jesus has been teaching and healing, nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in Him. They knew He was the Son of God. They knew who He was. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. They knew that He was who He said He was. They believed it, but they did not want to get put out of the synagogue. They did not want to look bad in front of other people. And then he says, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So that's my question. Their problem, just just think of the irony. They set Jesus up to do a miracle no one can do except God Himself. And they think it's a trap. That if He does it, then they'll prove He's not from God. See how crazy they are? And then He heals them. And we say, how could anyone be so stupid? The proof is in the pudding. Their trap backfires when He heals them. Except they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So, who in your life, whose opinion matters so much that it keeps you from following Christ to wherever He would have you go? Second, what perception of myself do I project before others? Look at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So think about the question I'm asking. What perception of myself do I project before others? And Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed 
how they chose places of honor. Jesus showed up for this meal. If this is a typical uh, Jewish household, there would be a table that's in the shape of a U. And there would be kind of like a couch reclining around the whole thing. And at the center of the U would be the host, the head person at the table. The closer you are to the host, the higher status you have. People show up at the house at different times, and Jesus is watching as they're all figuring out where they line up at this table. And he's been watching them. And he he noticed how people were choosing to put themselves high up. They were projecting themselves at this meal as important. And he said to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. This is the first imperative we have in our text. The first command. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. You don't know who's all showing up. How close are you going to sit to the head? Someone more important might come. Unless they come to you and say to you, give your place to this person. Then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Proverbs 25, 6 and 7 teaches a similar thing that Christ is teaching them. They should have known this. Proverbs 25, 6 says, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble that your eyes have seen. And so Jesus is teaching this principle. Is he teaching them how to be better hypocrites, to look better in others? He's getting at a principle that unless they learn, although they think they're great, they're going to end up at the end of their life being humbled. There's this principle that flows all throughout the Scriptures. Like James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God grabs those who are lowly of heart, that have a contrite spirit, and He, by grace, exalts them. Not because they're great, but because they know they're not great in light of God's greatness. They know that if they would ever be lifted up, God would have to lift them up in grace. How do you project yourselves out before people? 
Go to your Facebook page. Go to your Instagram. Go to whatever else we do nowadays. Social media platforms. And ask yourselves, are you in this exhausting program of projecting yourself out to look good in front of other people so that they might like you and give you status or value. Because if that's the rat race you're in, that's opposed to being able to live your life for Christ. To be able to say, I'm willing to be humbled in front of man knowing that exaltation will come from God. How do you project yourselves before others? Who do you seek to please so that they might think good things of you? These are self-righteous people who view themselves as very great, even though Jesus in his love shows them their hypocrisy. This is an opportunity to repent when Jesus shares this with them. But their view of themselves is so high, they will not have Christ. What is the perception of myself before God. How will you stand on that day? You really want to live a whole life of gaining the approval of man all to end up at before the throne of God? When you read about this at the end of Revelation, it says heaven and earth is fled away. You're standing by yourself before the God of the universe. No more people. No more credits for approval you got. How do you view yourself on that day? And if you know you would be in trouble, then run to Christ. Then come to the banquet that Jesus is going to talk about. That's the only hope any of us have. Look at what he says. Verse 12. And he said to the man who invited him. Now imagine this. This, is, this really happened. So Jesus is the son of God. And I'm guessing he probably doesn't have that great a seat at the banquet. <laughs> and the ruler who thinks he's hot stuff is sitting there. And Jesus had, this just has to be a testament to Jesus of their blindness. He said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner banquet, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now this might sound like loving your friends or 
loving your neighbors or loving your family, but it's actually using them. It's not true love. This is using them, how they can respond back to you to give you worth, to give you identity, to give you value. So Jesus says, don't do that. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. Now, this is a principle Jesus taught all throughout his ministry. He says, they can't repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So the issue is not that it's bad to want to receive reward or payment. It's just crazy to try to seek it in the temporary here and now rather than for eternity with God. If we had time, which we don't have, to go to the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is pounding one point. One point. It has different headings. You know, how to give to the needy, how to pray, how to do all these things, but he's getting at one point. He's, he's essentially saying, my dad is awesome. Live for His praise and not the praise of man. He begins Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't do your works in front of men in order to be praised by them, for then you've received your reward. But my Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't pray in front of people like the Pharisees with long prayers. Then you've received a reward. But go into a room, shut the door and pray. Then my Father who is in secret will reward you. See, so he's saying, what do you want? What kind of reward do you want? Who are, who are you living for? And this had to be so frustrating for Christ, knowing how wonderful the Father is and seeing people reject Him over and over and over again for this pathetic using of each other that the world calls love. You know, yeah, you're important and you're beautiful and you have money, so I'll invite you who are important. We'll both make each other feel great. This is not love. But this is the world system. And this is what we can be drawn into. When one of those, verse 15 now, who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So none of this teaching has hit home on this man. He says, yeah, it's going to be great in the kingdom of God. You know, this might even be a, a Pharisee further down the list. Maybe he's not at the front of the table. And maybe what he thinks Jesus is saying is, see, we're all going to be the same. You guys that were fighting for those seats up there, we're all going to be blessed when we eat bread in the kingdom. So someone speaks up and says this. 
But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. It's ready right now. The food is on. But they all began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. That's a dumb excuse. You already looked at it if you bought it, so why do you need to go see it? And another said, I bought five oxen. I'll go out and examine them. Well, if you can afford five oxen, you're rich. Go have a slave examine them. Jesus is giving ridiculous responses. There's nothing greater in this culture than to be invited to a wedding feast. No one would make an excuse like this. And another said, or, or, and then he says, uh, and another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now here the Pharisees would have fell on the ground laughing because they did not value women well. They treated their wives poorly. For a wife to dictate whether or not you would go to this wonderful thing would have been laughable in their sight. And these are the excuses. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. None of them. None of those, those who had these excuses that said, yeah, I know about the banquet, but I have a job. But I have a social status to keep up. Yeah, but I have things to do. None of those invited will be at the banquet. The man had just said, oh, we're all going to be blessed in the kingdom of God eating bread. And Jesus says, no, you're not going to be there. Because he loves the praise that comes from man more than the love or the praise of God. The first exhortation. There's three commands or imperatives in this parable. Look at the end of verse 17. Come, for everything is now ready. That invitation is given to you. Come to the banquet. Come, value Christ above all other things. 
believe in faith that it's worth being rejected by the world and being accepted by God. Run to the narrow door. This is what he's just been teaching. He's been teaching, repent. Admit you're not good. Run to the narrow door. Remember why the door is narrow? Because you can't have anything on. You need, to, you need to be stripped naked. If you think you have any goodness that would allow you to come in, you won't get in. But they were bloated with pride in their status before men, in their, religi- their religious rules that they were able to keep, that they could not follow Christ. Come to the banquet. It is ready. You might be saying, yeah, but I don't know. (laughs) Well, don't be crazy. (laughs) Why would anyone delay? When eternity's at stake, your soul is eternal, my soul is eternal. Everyone dies. If If you laid eternity out like a rope, and you put your 80 years, if you're lucky enough to get that much on that, that is one speck of a dot. And the majority of the people in this world see what they can gain during that speck and say, I won't follow Christ. That demands my life. So come to Him. And then second, look at another command in verse 21. Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. This is a call to all Christians. This is what we are to do. And then another one in verse 23, go out to the highways and hedgeways, compel people to come in that my house may be filled But you're going to go to people and they're going to say, we're already in. We're already in. Don't worry. Settle down. And then you need to be loving enough to do what Jesus did. Jesus told this parable to help them see that they're not getting in. Because they're not, they have not been humble enough to turn to Christ. And so we need to help them see their true status, even if they're a deacon or an elder of a church or a pastor of a church. Has there been the humbling that has caused the soul to cling to Christ? One of the things Jesus is pointing out is what we've already seen. He's already taught us in chapter 13, verse 27. He says, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out and people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. And Jesus is teaching the same thing. He says, you Pharisees think you're getting in. Your confidence is in your ancestry. Abraham 
was your father in the flesh, but not in faith. And he says, you're going to be standing there and you're going to see all your heroes, all the prophets in, and you yourselves cast out. And people are going to come in from the east and west, north and south. Those are the Gentiles. And they're going to dine in this banquet that you're left out of. And so, I want to end by sharing with you what it looks like when a Pharisee gets saved. Show you the difference that is made. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy 1.12. Paul, who is a Pharisee of the Pharisees, who was as good as you could be as a Pharisee. He had the pedigree. He had the fleshly ties. He had all the best teaching. He learned under Gamiel. Here's what Paul says. I thank him. This is 1 Timothy 1.12. I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Now the question we need to ask is, okay, what did Paul do that God looked at and and found him worthy? He says, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. What? God chose him because he acted ignorantly in unbelief and he was killing Christians? And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's what he didn't have. But God sovereignly gave him the new birth, put in the new heart, gave him the faith that he never had. And so here's what he says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might be display or might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Has that happened to you? Have you realized that you are the foremost of sinners? Why does Paul say that? Does that mean he sinned more than anyone else who ever lived? What it means is, is in his mind, he doesn't know of any more sin than what's in his own mind. It's the same for you. Because we're accountable to our thoughts. Do you know a sinner greater than you? You don't. Your only hope 
is the narrow door, Jesus Christ. And it's my prayer that you'll see that if you will have him, you are adopted. You have all the self-identity any man would ever need. Colossians 2.9 says this, For in him, which is Jesus, the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. Why is he making this argument? The Colossian church has received Christ, but then been told by false teachers, you got to keep the Sabbath, you need extra visions, you need to do all this stuff. And here's Paul's argument. The fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form in the person of Jesus Christ. Comprehend it. In, the, in his body. And you have been filled in him. Now I'm here to tell you that if you're trusting in Christ, you're full. Because all of Christ was put in your place. Your life is now defined by his work on your behalf, not your work. That's the gospel. Perfect righteousness has been put in your account. The Christians should be the last people to be grabbing after the praise of man because we're so full, we're overflowing. So Jesus says, love your enemies. You can love those that treat you poorly because you're filled in him. And if you will have Christ, if you'll come to the banquet, if you'll receive the invitation, it'll cost you. Look at the text for next week. Jesus says, he who does not hate father and mother is not worthy of the kingdom of God. If you, if, if you care more about your parents' view of you, you're not worthy for the kingdom. And it will cost you. But there will be a reward for the righteous on the last day. If you will have Christ. If you will admit that you're a sinner and you have no other hope. And you'll run to him. Trust in him by faith. I like to say cling to him. Because the people who are saved know that's my only hope. Father, I pray that everyone here would know you as Savior. Father, I thank you that your word cuts in and convicts us. And Father, I pray that that conviction would not lead to despair, but would cause us to throw ourselves upon the mercies of Christ, where all the promises find their yes and amen in him. Father, thank you that your grace is greater than our sin for those of us who will have Christ. Lord, help us know where our hope is set. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.